Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 183. Life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. Dennis Kimbrough. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my indie film hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Videoblocks. Now, guys, when I was shooting my show for Legendary Pictures, uh, and I did that 96 pages in four days, I actually got into post and we used a lot of stock footage, stock sounds, and even some uh, graphics from Videoblocks. They are an amazing resource. With your membership, you are granted the rights to use that footage forever in perpetuity on any projects you want to. So if you want to try a seven-day free trial, and by the way, anything you download during those seven days is yours to keep. And if you decide to stay, you get 84% off the yearly membership. It is well worth it, guys. Trust me, if you do a lot of production, it is something you really need. So just head over to videoblocks.com forward slash hustle. So guys, today on the show, we have an old friend of mine. His name is Straw Weissman. He is a writer-director. He's also a post-production supervisor, a VFX supervisor, a trailer cutter, a trailer producer, uh, and I think about another five or six other jobs that he's done uh, in his life, if not more. And I wanted to have him on the show because Straw has been at this for over 40 years. And he is definitely the definition of the long game without question and also hustle. The man is is a, a tremendous inspiration to me uh, and has been for the time that I've known him. He is uh, He's a street fighter in many ways in this business. And uh, and he just just keeps going no matter what, and he and he's truly an inspiration to to filmmakers. And I wanted him on the show to to kind of tell you guys his remarkable story. And uh, Straw was extremely open and honest and raw about what he's gone through in this business, and it hasn't been pretty. And it's something I talk about all the time. But his stories, uh, specifically one that you listen to in this episode will will pretty much put your mouth on the floor because it's uh it, it's pretty intense but just the tips and the tricks that he uses to keep going and to keep moving forward and when one there's a wall in front of you you stop you look at the wall you try to go through it it doesn't work you go around it and you figure a way out to just keep moving just keep moving forward and that is probably the biggest lesson 
uh, this show could ever teach anyone listening to it is to just keep going no matter what because things will happen for you, but you have to keep going. So without any further ado, enjoy my conversation with Straw Weissman. Straw, thank you so much for being on the show, brother. Alex, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, full disclosure, me and Straw have been working together for ten, almost nine years now? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, you were one of the first people I met when I came to uh, Los Angeles for the first time, which is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not quite sure just yet. Apparently, we don't <laughs> hold it against each other. <laughs> so, Straw, I wanted to have you on the show because you are one of those rare people in the industry who've been able to maintain themselves and had a successful career as a filmmaker uh, for the course of now over 40 years, uh, which is impossible because you're 27. But since you, I wanted people to understand what the benefits are of not just doing writing and directing, but all the other hats you do. We're going to get into the other hats and then how you combine all those other hats together to be a full kind of like full encompassing filmmaker that helps to get your movies out and keeps putting food on your table and keeps those checks coming in no matter what. So that's why I wanted to have you on the show. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to the tribe. Uh, I'm happy to be here and I'm hoping discover to discover the secret of that myself in this conversation. <laughs> okay, good. So how did you first and foremost get, uh, get into this crazy business? All right. So I'm a graduate of Ithaca College. Mm -hmm. Um, the year, uh, I attend the, the year I graduated, Bob Iger was the teaching assistant in the communications business law class. Uh, and Bob and Iger is who for the audience? <laughs> Bob Iger is today the president of, uh, everything Disney. Yeah. He's actually, I think he was ranked the most powerful man in Hollywood right now. There you go. Mm -hmm. So, um, I grad, I, 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 after that, I went to New York uh, as a struggling screenwriter, mm -hmm. and I wound up at a small motion picture distribution company uh, called Michigan Motion Pictures. This is the heyday of independent theatrical film distribution in the 1970s uh, in, in New York and L.A., and New York was a thriving indie film community, mm -hmm. and um, so I started at Doyle Dane and Burnback. Did not last there very long because uh, I was meant for other things. And I joined this distribution company where they sold movies regionally all over the country. Mm -hmm. And I started as what was called a film booker. Mm -hmm. And I would track all of the movies that we were selling through their different releases through the territories across the United States. Now, there were sub-distributors, these guys all over the country who received the prints, booked the local theaters, collected the money, and then reported back. And that was what film distribution in America looked like in the 70s. Mm -hmm. 35 millimeter um, trailers, 35 millimeter prints, you mailed out your one sheets and your promotion stills, um, and that was state of the art. Mm -hmm. Exactly. For, you For communications, if you were lucky, you had a telex. What I don't even want to know what a telex is. Way before the facts. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> in the dark, in the dark ages. Got you by horseback, by Pony Express. Got it. Kind of. That's how you communicated with Europe. Oh look, we got a telex overnight. Very <laughs> exciting. Um, 
so that was the that was the climate. And as working for an independent film distributor, I was a struggling screenwriter, and they proceeded to mine all of my different skill sets. What since we're paying you, what can you do? So I started writing trailers and copy lines, which for me was an extension of writing because I was in New York to be a struggling screenwriter anyway. Mm-hmm. And before long, I was able to convince them that I should write screenplays for them. And a couple of the movies I wrote got made. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first film, I sold my first screenplay when I was 23. It was a movie called Pelvis. Mm-hmm. Um kind of a takeoff on an Elvis-esque character who comes to the big city. It was rated R. (laughs) Now, how many films have you written over your course of your career? IMDb says I'm a writer or co-writer on 14. Um, I think the number is 15, and there are quite a few uncredited writing participations since. Got it. Okay, so continue, sir. All right, so... Uh, the first film, so I'm sitting in their offices, um, and the first film idea I had and pitched, because by then I had learned that you had to sell yourself and your product, and this was a company that was, they did, for, for where they released movies, primarily starting on 42nd Street and then around the world, there was a thing they designed called The Front, which was, the, which was an elaborate cardboard, cardboard uh, poster board display about the movie playing in that theater. Like a standee, like a standee in the video stores. Like a st- before standees, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they would do the whole front of the theater, both sides, and the marquee, and it would be quite elaborate. And this was a way to get attention on in Times Square, on 42nd Street, on Broadway. You'd have this colorful front. And there were a few companies that specialized in designing those. And if you're doing a front, of course, you're going to have some copy, some words. Um, and, and, and that was part of it as well. This was a style of advertising in your face billboard, if you will. And, um, the guys I worked for, the, the old guy I worked for was really good at designing fronts. He was William Mishkin, mm-hmm. uh, the owner of Mishkin motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And I worked for him and his son, Lewis, uh, on and off for a lot of years. I made pelvis with them and I went on to make fight for your life with them. A uh, fairly controversial film in its in its time. Uh, the guys I made pelvis with the the lead actor Greg Gregory Fleeman and the director Bob Meganson bonded during the making of Pelvis, which was a musical before MTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it had saw Gregory Fleeman wrote it was meant to be a musical and he wrote these pretty funny songs and this, it actually was a musical before MTV. Yeah. Now, how was it? Li- I mean, because uh, for the audience to to really understand, what was it like being an independent filmmaker in the eighties and uh, in the early nineties? Well, you it would depend on what job you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a I was a screenwriter, mm-hmm. and to support my screenwriting habit between selling movies, um, I did several other things. Uh, I wrote trailer copy. Mm-hmm and commercials uh, for my various people in the industry. I wrote for some of the New York uh, trailer houses, and that led to writing copy lines and print lines, all movie advertising. It's the only thing really that I've ever done mm-hmm. that way 
with any joy or success. Mm-hmm. So I was writing for all of those agencies. Uh, I was screenwriting. I was driving a pickup truck for my my pickup truck for for my friends in Manhattan who were doing commercial shoots. And I was a kind of super PA. I had a truck. I had a bunch of tools. Um, I understood what I was doing and why we were doing it because I was already in production. Um, and I worked all of those jobs simultaneously between successes as a young writer and then a young writer director. And then you got to what was and you got to direct. What was your first film that you directed? The first film I directed was Deadmates. Okay. And you directed how many films over the course of your career? According to IMDb. I love that you keep referring to IMDb. Well, I, it, it, the, the, the line's blurred because I've done a lot of uncredited directing consulting over the years. Sure. As well, IMDb says eight. Mm-hmm. And it's more like nine, but one of those films I'm not allowed to talk about too much. Fair enough. So, so we might talk about it. <laughs> okay. Now, did you? And then, how did you get into post production supervision? Crazy enough, um, my while my directing career has been a roller coaster over the years, uh, because when you make a when you make a feature film as a writer director, if your film doesn't get out there. It's a long climb back up to that next independent feature. Yep. You have to find another you, you have to find something else you're passionate about. You have to push to get it written. It has to be worthy. You have to cobble together some understanding about financing. Mm-hmm. And then you and you know, to go off and make it. So being a writer director is hard work. What I found was that my marketing skills, my movie advertising skills started in the early days of copywriting in New York, um, were in demand. And I continued writing trailers and promos for most of the hotshot agencies in L.A. when we finally, when we finally moved out here. Mm-hmm. And again, writing, writing advertising copy was to support my screenplay habit. Now, what was what was the average budget of an independent film in the 80s uh, just for, that you directed, let's say? Or you wrote. So, well, hearsay was a million dollar movie, mm-hmm. and, and that was low, but and that was super low budget back then. Well, the movies that I had participated in before that uh, were much lower budget, shot on thirty five in the in the seven in the late seventies, early eighties. You could make a feature film for two hundred thousand dollars. Now, you might say that's a good number for an independent film today, mm-hmm. and funny enough, it kind of is. Mm-hmm. It is. With the right yeah. with the right cast, yeah, you know, it, but but the cost of film and lab and labor and equipment and camera rentals and lenses and editorial and everything, um, that was and that was considered you know an okay low budget movie mm-hmm. to have that kind of money available, right. Now, it was like in that time period, though, and I've said this before, is it kind of true that you really just needed to, if you were able to cobble together a feature film, in more than one way, it would get sold somewhere because there was just not enough product out there at the time. Is that a a fair statement or were there a lot of feature films? And I'm sure there were a lot of feature films that didn't get any distribution. But generally speaking, if you made something of some decent quality, 
you would get it out there and you would be able to make your money back. Is that fair to say? Um, no, I think, I think you would have have to have known what you were doing. Well, like I said, yeah, exactly. If you kind of knew what you were doing and you kind of put things together. There was a system, Mm -hmm. um, in the, in the seven, before the seventies and into the eighties until the advent really of VHS Mm -hmm. and beta, um, the system was you would, you would go make your movie assuming you were truly independent, you'd go make your movie, you'd finish it, you'd invite distributors, these these distributors like I worked for, they would look at the movie and they would bid for your movie uh, in the independent marketplace, Mm -hmm. and they would take your movie out. And depending on what advertising cost and how honest everybody was in the field and uh, all of those other factors, your movie might make money, it might not. Mm -hmm. The theory was always that the intellectual property would live on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get revenues, but that's a hard path uh, to travel because companies live and die, libraries shift. Um, Do you still get any revenues from any of those movies you did back in the day? I, I'm getting, I'm getting revenue from some of the recent product. Okay, but not of the no. not of not stuff that you did in the '80s or '90s that just kind of like just went away. I, an example would be Fight for Your Life. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, so let's talk about Fight for Your Life. Can you discuss a little bit of the Tarantino controversy with Fight for Your Life and Django Unchained? Okay. So Fight for Your Life was a Desperate Hours-like story about a nonviolent black family that gets home invaded by three desperate convicts, Kane, Ling, and Chino. Mm-hmm. Uh, equally, so we've got a white guy, an Asian guy, um, and a Hispanic guy holding a nonviolent black family hostage. Mm-hmm. And William Sanderson, who's gone on to be incredibly famous as an actor, uh, played Kane, the white sadistic bigot. Mm-hmm. And the language was really inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And um, Purpo- so- and purposefully so, correct? Purposefully so. This was intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea was to be controversial. Mm-hmm. And as a young writer in Manhattan at the same time that people like David Rabe and Mamet were writing on Broadway, um, my sense of the language I was entitled to use uh, pretty much knew no bounds, like anything you might see in the theater. It was hard. It was harsh. The racial epithets were aggressive. Mm-hmm. The kid, interesting, interesting side note. The kid who played the little boy mm-hmm. is named Reggie Bythewood. Mm-hmm. Reggie Bythewood grew up kind of wanting to be a, wanting to be in film after being in Fight for Your Life. He now makes those biker movies and uh, has done a lot of successful films as a as a as a grown up since then. Now how uh, now how is that comp- like what's the Tarantino controversy and the whole okay. Django Unchained thing? So the film is the film. In the third act, the tide turns, and the black family, which is nonviolent and led by a nonviolent preacher, kind of goes off the rails, and they violently reciprocate against the three convicts. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty violent, pretty violent uh, turnaround. Um, so, Fight for Your Life played some cities. Um, people like John Waters wrote about it in passing at the time. Uh, the black audiences tore seats out of the theaters in mm-hmm. a couple of cities. Mm-hmm. Um, not widely distributed. Oddly enough. Oddly enough, not wildly, <laughs> widely distributed. People were afraid. Uh-huh. 
Um, now, the thing is that if you hung around for the third act, after, after the degradation and insult part, mm-hmm. if you hung around for the third act, the audience went crazy. Mm-hmm. They loved because it. Every time, yeah. every time the family fought back, it was great. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, it's available. You, you'll, find, you'll find Fight for Your Life out there in the internet uh, world uh, landscape. Yeah. So uh, Quentin Tarantino wrote favorably about it. Uh, Quentin put Fight for Your Life in his Grindhouse Film Festival, which he put together. It played at the Beverly. I think he and Sage uh, Stallone were collectors and had prints. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that came Django Unchained. Uh, some people have said that there's a lot of similarity between what happens in Django Unchained and what happens in the third act of Fight for Your Life. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that Quentin is a fan of what we did. Fair, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, can you talk a little bit about how your marketing and copywriting that you did for um, – for the advertising side of the film industry kind of helped you, uh, help, helped you as a filmmaker and helped you get your product out into the world. Um, as, as, so to support my writing habit, um, and my, and trying to be a director again for each next successive film, um, my advertising business has come and come and gone in different, different ways. For a while we had a fairly busy trailer, business uh, that supported a lot of the independent films that went through the American film market and Cannes Film Festival world, maybe 10 or 15 years of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but we saw, I saw a lot of independent movies and I worked with a lot of sales agents. Um, sales agents are always wishing for something. You know, they pick up a movie and they say, make it look like some other movie or only show these parts and that parts. So we were continually taking movies apart and putting them together um, to make them look like they were supposed to or make them look different than they were supposed to Mm -hmm. or to enhance one thing or downplay another. Um, And this leads to a sense of marketing. What am I selling? Who am I selling it to? How are we going to sell it? And most importantly, what does my client and my audience wish they could get? What do they wish they could have? And that's the movie I try to sell. So, because I know marketing, and you and I have worked on on a handful of marketing campaigns over the years. The a lot of times trailers and uh, well, not a lot of times, most of the times trailers lie to you, uh, and posters lie to you as as a, as a consumer because you're expecting one thing and 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 you get something else, or they give the entire story away in the trailer. What's your feeling considering how many trailers have you worked on over the years? I believe it's, I don't know, closing in on 1,100. All right. So you've worked on a lot of promos over the years. Can you talk a little bit about not just the importance of the trailer for an independent filmmaker, but also how to actually do it properly and not give it all away or try to really completely lie about it? I mean, there's, there's, there's a fine line between full-blown lying and uh you know and and completely misleading the audience and selling it there is a fine line between that where all the good parts are in the trailer and things like that can you talk a little bit about how to do a trailer correctly every every movie is its own 
new product origination. Every movie is the new kid on the block to the degree that I can differentiate it from everything else in the cereal aisle of that particular, you know, of that particular situation. Because you're going to be in a mall with 17 other movies if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. Or a line on Amazon, you know, for somebody to select from a video screen. What differentiates you? What makes your movie worth seeing? So I'm always looking for some kind of a high concept, whether it's the title itself or something that tells me what the movie is about as quickly as possible. Because the audience today is making a snap decision. But it's always been about what does the audience wish they could see? I want to see a cool chick with a gun. Mm-hmm. I want to see a guy with a ripped shirt and a bandolier full of bullets and a submachine gun. All right, whose head is on that body? Well, I want to see it more if it's Arnold, or or you wouldn't want to see it more if it's Arnold or Bruce than mm-hmm. if it's some guy who only had an independent film acting career as that bad guy, as that guy. Right, you know? right. But we're always we're always looking to put. It's like when you go out on a date with with somebody new you dr- you might dress up so we're gonna in order to get our in, in order to get our date we're gonna dress we're gonna dress the movie up mm-hmm. i say the same thing today i'm working I, I i'm doing consulting projects among other things we're recutting movies occasionally mm-hmm. and my rule is no bad shots no bad dialogue no mm-hmm. bad acting mm-hmm. because these are the things that instantly give away what we really might be. Now you say, well, isn't it is it honest to show the bad shots and the bad dog? No. Well, sure, but only if only if you're also committed to not necessarily selling. So then, basically, uh, on on another side, is like a guy wearing spanks to impress a girl on the first date because they want to hold in their gut. If, well, uh, yeah. Because you don't want to show the, you don't want. Eventually, you'll see the gut, but right now, that first impression is really important. Does that make sense? Good analogy. If I'm doing a horror, if I'm promoting a horror movie, I want to scare you. If I'm promoting a romantic comedy, I want to warm your heart in a charming and way that promises a little, a little edge. Mm -hmm. If I'm selling an outright comedy, Mm -hmm. what I show you had better be funny. Right. I mean, there are certain so so there are certain obvious things. Mm-hmm. As for giving away the movie, um, most people use their best explosion somewhere in their trailer mm-hmm. because we don't know. We the audience don't know whether it's their best explosion mm-hmm. or it's just one of their explosions, mm-hmm. or their own, or their only explosion, <laughs> or their only explosion. You, know, you have the bigger explosion, and in that case. The producer comes into the editing room, looks at the cut, and goes, why aren't you using the big explosion? Mm-hmm. Now, well, the audience said, we blew this thing up. Show them where we put the money. Yeah, exactly. So there's a fine line you've got to kind of walk when you're doing trailers, I see. I did a trailer. I did a promo reel once for Arnold Copelson, mm-hmm. Academy Award-winning producer. Sure. A, a platoon, among other things. Mm-hmm. And this was a movie um, about... Uh, Warrior helicopter interdictions of drugs on the southern border. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was released as Firebirds. Yeah, I remember Firebirds. I was uh, Nick Cage, if I'm not mistaken. Nick, right? Cage, Nick Cage and Sean Young. Oh my gosh! 
rope, so we're cu- so I'm I'm writing and directing a promo reel. You cut you, Cop- you, you cut that trailer. I remember that trailer working we, at the video we store. Cut, we cut one trailer. I don't know which one you saw. Okay, but you know it's it's on my it's on my website, which needs to be updated. I think so, sir. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're cutting this promo reel. The movie is not done yet. Very mm-hmm. common. Grab, yeah. grab the best footage you have, race it to edit, and cut a promo. Sure, happens every day. And, and our reel is together, and I've got everything we have, and it, it's pretty dramatic, and I've hired a cool music supervisor, and we're using big music, and it's exciting as hell. And Copelson comes in, and he goes, where's the goddamn explosion? And Arnold was a yeller. Mm-hmm. He was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Still is, probably. Sweet mm-hmm. as hell. Very, mm-hmm. very smart, very sweet. And he says, where's the goddamn explosion? Well, we don't have the explosion. I'll take care of that. And he jumps on the phone. He goes, production, send over that reel of test explosions we did. Okay. Half an hour later, we get we get 35 millimeter footage. We get this explosion. Mm-hmm. And we copy it up. And we cut it in. And we look at it. And we go, there you go. There's the explosion. He says, no. There's 12 tests on this reel. Put them all in. <laughs> okay. And so we did. And suddenly, and suddenly, the trailer had a ton of stuff blowing up. And and that sold that movie. <laughs> and it helped. It did. That movie did well. It was a Touchstone movie. I remember it was a Disney release. Touchstone, yeah, Touchstone picked it up. Yeah, I remember that whole. Yeah, you're. That's in my. That's in my window of knowing every film that came out. There's a about a five or six year window that I worked in the video store that I know every movie that came out ever during that period of time because we had it uh and that was one of them uh now a lot of times straw you and i have worked on god and i can't even count how many projects we worked on over the years um but a lot of times i know that you work directly with distributors and distributors will buy a movie and then they will bring you in as the as the jean renault character from la femme nikito the fixer the cleaner uh you kind of come in and you'll re-edit it. You'll actually shoot new scenes. You'll actually bring new cast in. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Because I know that's kind of a hidden art uh, and a hidden thing that a lot of filmmakers don't know about. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the, every every occasion where I come into a movie that's already been started is unique and different because every independent film is unique and different. Everybody – the thing about independent films is that anybody with a credit card, a rich aunt, uh, a paper bag full of money, mm-hmm. or an iPhone now, mm-hmm. anybody can go out and make. So it's – Well, why don't we use this one as an example? And I won't say the name specifically, but I think you know the, the, the one with the greatest – the world's greatest DP? Um. There's so there was a there was a movie about <laughs> gangsters that we worked on together. Yes. Um, so in the case of that movie, we a filmmaker came forward and said, "I've got this great movie. I've got this terrific movie about this gangster culture that thrives in the underground, the seedy underground of Los Angeles." And never, very I, original. Very original. Got this great footage. Very contemporary. Sure. And. Our team looked at the footage. I was working with a company called New Films International and doing a lot of this uh, acquisition, bring finishing money, recut, reshoot mentality mm-hmm. kind of projects. Mm-hmm. And um, this gangster movie showed up. 
And my team said to me, can you, can you turn this into something that we think we, we would be more saleable? And I feel like I'm choosing my words carefully, mm-hmm. um, more carefully than I might. I, don't, um, I honestly don't think you need to be that careful because I, I have a lot of disdain for that film. <laughs> okay. so, so knock well, yourself out. We won't say it, names, but go ahead. It's one of my it's one of my favorite fix it not be appreciated sufficiently movies of all time. Yeah. Um, so unfinished movie um, because I said I could fix it and help make it a better movie. Uh, New Films International went on to acquire this low budget indie gangster picture, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary gangster picture, <laughs> and um, we spent quite a bit of time with the writer director. Mm-hmm. recutting it mm-hmm. and eventually had to kind of push the writer director out of the process because he insisted on holding two bad shots, shots of family members. Uh, I, I, basically he was insane. He was, he, he was very passionate about his vision. Unfortunately, his vision was not in sync with what the people I worked for thought they could sell. So politically correct. I love it. I, I'm trying really hard. <laughs> You are you actually a wordsmith. So when I hear you talk and explain things like this, it's like an artist working. It's like a, it's a master artist working with words because uh, you're much more eloquent than I am, sir. <laughs> well, I, I mean, in, 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 it's one way of looking at it. Ultimately, sure. he was he, he ultimately he was asked to not be part of the creative process. Yes, I finished the cut with an editor I had done multiple projects with before. Um, my my yes. producer, my 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 sales agent, distributor guy said, "Okay, pretty close." But and then we added new scenes, so we went out and shot new scenes and integrated the new material with slightly more famous actors than had been in the movie before, so that it had a slightly newer look and better names. Sure. And that picture has gone out into the worldwide marketplace where you could find it today. Mm-hmm. And 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 it. Uh it, and it sold. It actually made money. It did. It did sell. There was amazing. There were actually there was actually almost a slightly different version of the movie than the one we finally finished. Yeah, I remember there was uh, the voiceover situation. There was. We did. Ultimately, it had a voiceover. It was like the whole Blade Runner situation: voiceover, because no voiceover. It needed, it needed a it needed a character to tell the story. <laughs> and in the case of this movie, the character was uh, you. Was Michael. Was was played by a Michael Madsen kind of a guy. Yeah, a kind of a guy. Correct, a kind of I, Michael Madsen kind of guy. Correct. And, and I think Michael Madsen might have even been in that picture. He possibly could have been. And the character it, told the story in a kind of a close mic technique like this. And this is about gangsters and good guys and bad guys. And some guys are so bad you wouldn't want to hang out with them. You should. You should have just done it. I don't know why you just didn't do it, sir. As it turned out, Michael Madsen. <laughs> Did that narration, but before that, uh-huh. we had we we looked at the movie at one point and said, you know, and 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 this was a marketing decision. This is a great marketing decision. Mm-hmm. We looked at the movie and said, you know, it might be better if the voiceover had an ironic, funny comedy element to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, uh, that's a direction to go to. And so I wrote a and so I wrote a guy who talked more like this. Oh God, stop! Just stop! Stop! Just stop. 
we we did a whole version of the movie. Jesus. We did an entire draft of the movie. Right. With the guy going, and you know, there's no reason that character's in the corner of the frame because the continuity doesn't match. Now, just 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 and we presented we presented that version, and the and the and the room, the people had chuckled through the whole movie, and at the end, of as the they scene, should, the lights came up. The the guy who owned the company looked at the marketing guy and goes, "Very funny, but I don't know if we can. I don't know if we could sell it this way." <laughs> Took an impression of him. <laughs> the writer director, the writer director heard what had happened. And began and, and and flipped out. Oh, I, 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 of course. For 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 months. Mm-hmm. About how I had ruined his masterpiece. I understand. Now we later is- brought we later brought Michael Madsen in to read a slightly toned down version of this of the same narration. So I, th- delivered this is, differently. This is a good point. This is a good point to make uh, for everyone listening. You know, we're not trying to make fun of an independent filmmaker trying to put out his work. But when – and this is something that Straw has worked with a lot in his career and so have I. A lot of times there's delusions of grandeur or there's uh, filmmakers who just aren't honest with what they have in front of them uh, in the marketplace because at the end of the day, this is a, a product that's going to be sold. And this movie was made to be sold. It wasn't an art piece. It wasn't a, a movie that wasn't not going to be sold and didn't care if money was made or not. This was a, this was a commercial endeavor. And uh, unfortunately, his ideals and his uh, his vision didn't match up with what the market was willing to pay for his vision, and the grandiose ideas of he had. Uh, you know, he also did a lot of stuff in the marketing world with YouTube, with buying views because he's like, hey, if we have over a million views, people are gonna buy it because they think you know. So he bought a bunch of views on YouTube for his trailer, so it looked a lot bigger. There was a lot of mistakes the filmmaker made. And then just the way he dealt with the process. And, I, and, and it, it was, at the end of the day, it's unfortunate more than anything else. Correct. It, it was no pleasure dealing with him or his antics or mm-hmm. his frustration and the way he acted out. But the important thing, mm-hmm. at every step of the way, the, the people I worked with did nothing but their best to try and make, bring something helpful to the product. Right. And that's, that's the good takeaway. There isn't a project I've worked on where I haven't, including the stuff I've written and the stuff I've directed and the stuff I've ghost-directed or ghost-written mm-hmm. or re-edited, where we don't put everything we have into it because we're hoping that what we bring to it is going to make a difference for it. And right. most of Almost all of those pictures are out in the marketplace. Almost every one of them. And 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 without that assistance, they would be sitting on a shelf somewhere. Some uh, of them ever have been finished. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Some of them wouldn't have finished. So, I think a lesson for filmmakers listening now is before you ever get to that point where a distributor is coming in to finish your movie for you because you didn't figure out the proper budget or how to do it properly or just didn't know what you were doing or got in over your head kind of figure this all out prior to ever getting to that point because I guarantee you they'd much rather deal with a final product. But when you give a distributor your movie to finish, the creative control is going to go out the window because they've got the money now to finish your movie. And that's exactly what happened. That's the flip side. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, what he had wasn't a finished movie. Right. Yeah, and and, and there was no view to the finish line except getting help. 
So, you know, you, you got to applaud somebody for coming out of a different business and saying, I'm going to make a movie and here's my vision and trying to get it in the can. I'm a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a movie with John Ritter in 2001, 2002 called Man of the Year. Mm-hmm. We shot the whole movie in one night. Mm-hmm. And the movie was made in, in out of my frustration for having to deal with the hierarchy of the film industry. I put out the word that I wanted to shoot a movie in one night, and I had 20 cameras show up. And wow. we shot, shot a feature film with 24 actors, John Ritter, SAG independent movie, and we shot the whole picture in one night. And tell us a little bit about that, sir. That sounds fascinating. It was man of the, the premise of Man of the Year was that a guy was getting an award from his friends and company. Uh, so the whole sh- the whole story takes place in a modern mansion uh, off Laurel Canyon, in fact. Mm-hmm. Still there. And um, it was all about the party. And I said, I'm going to shoot the picture in one night. And everybody I know said, you are out of your mind. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 this is going to work. And I recruited about 20 different cameras. Well, all, film or, or digital? All video. This is video. Oh, this video is um, 2000. So video. Videographers, multiple videographers in all of the different rooms, the dining room, the bedrooms, mm-hmm. the elevator, because mm-hmm. uh, this place had an elevator, the lobby and back by the pool. And um, 24 SAG actors, um, improv technique from a written roadmap which is to say that christine hodge who was was the redhead from head of the class and john ritter were secret lovers Mm -hmm. we didn't write all their dialogue but we established that they have to talk about what what where the relation where the secret relationship is in the kitchen right you Uh, basically did a scriptment what i call a skeleton right got it if the it's the script inside out everything but the dialogue got it which gives the actors, it, it, and, and I recommend this style for certain kinds of movies because it's exciting as hell. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, and we shot the movie in one night, and I got, had a guy named Ari Green who was going to take domestic distribution, and we opened theatrically for a week, and uh, this was after John Ritter died. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was no John Ritter to promote it anymore. And, um but this was, you know, this was a movie with up to nine split screens, which goes back to Abel Gantz and Napoleon. Mm-hmm. This was a very busy video project, but it was a feature film blown up to 35 from stand, from 20 standard def cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that taught me that, that, that 24 hours taught me that if you can make a movie in one night, you can do anything <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it caused me to go on and direct, write and direct the movie, same style called Trunk, mm-hmm. which was another another feature. That, and we shot that in four days. Yep, I remember that one. Yeah, with two red cameras. Yes, yes, I was. Cameras, I knew you then. Now, can you talk a little bit about the importance of cast in the in the in the international and domestic marketplace when uh, making an it, independent film? It, you get to a crossroads sometimes. There are a very few number of reasons why people will be in your movie. Uh, they're living with you. They're married to you. They're sleeping with you. You know, that's sure. one. Sure. Uh, they want to make a lot of money and you have some. They love the script that you want them to be in uh, for, one of a, for one of several reasons. Um, so it's hard to get stars for your little indie movie. 
if, for example, your script isn't great or your script is improv, mm -hmm. like Trunk. Mm -hmm. For Trunk, I cast an actress named Jennifer Day, mm -hmm. who I had seen walking around the American film market in the skimpiest of possible clothing mm -hmm. to go with her beautiful blonde looks. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's exactly what the heroine of my movie looks like. And I walked up to her and I said, hey, J hey Jennifer, you hardly know me, but I'm going to make you the lead in my movie. And I did. And that's what, I, that's what AFM does. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what AFM does. But she was what I was looking for. And she had the nerves of steel to trust somebody like me making a four-day movie about a girl trapped in the trunk of a car. Mm -hmm. uh, being driven to her death by a serial killer. So, um, yeah, it, it, but cast makes all the difference. The reason that gangster movie uh, got added scenes was that they could, so that they could shoot additional characters who had marketable names. Guys who talk like this, for example. Exactly, exactly. Uh, names, names, names are critical. I'm, I'm working on packaging a movie right now and I can't go forward until I cast a female lead for the seven days that we need her. And she has to be acceptable to, self, to foreign sales agents or we will not get funded. And that's the business. And that's the business we're in. The independent filmmaking, as I've experienced it both as a marketing guy and as a, and as a maker, mm -hmm. you have to have nerves of steel. You either have to be independently funded or incredibly technically adept, mm -hmm. um, or some combination of those things, or have good friends, or have great luck, or be market, uh, remarkably talented. And even then, it's not an easy game because we're, we're, there are no, it's independent film. There's no rule book. Even at the American film market level, where there's some rule book, there's no rule book. Mm -hmm. I could go out. I could go out this afternoon and make another one-day movie if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And if you had the right star in it, you could probably get it sold somewhere. Uh, yeah, and today, anybody, anybody, anybody who can hear our voices could take whatever video equipment they have, including their iPhone or their iPad or their Android, and and go out and make their indie feature. Because by now, it's already, it's been done already. Mm -hmm. Successfully. But, you know, you take your GoPro and make a feature. I've used, I've used combinations of cell phones, GoPros, Red, and Alexa in the same project, as you know. Yes, I yes I do. To my dismay, when dealing yeah. with it in post, <laughs> which brings it which which brings us to post production supervision. Yeah. How, how did that happen? <laughs> so, Marquee Productions, which is my production company, mm -hmm. um. I, I was writing writing movie advertising for a bunch of people. And at one point, I looked at my clients and said, well, um, I'm just going to start a production company and I'm going to open offices and hire my editors and run it. Uh, it used to, we used to be the Weissman Company, clever enough name. Mm -hmm. uh, but we opened Marquee. And so now we are dealing with editing rooms and a sound room and editors coming and going. And the business is taking movies apart and putting them together as trailers and teasers and delivering on 35 millimeter and delivering eventually on video. Mm -hmm. This caused me to have to be incredibly tolerant 
of my clients because everybody's movie went down a different road. Mm-hmm. So you you would get video elements, you get film elements, you get transfers with or without visible time code. You might not be able to match back, and you were forever having to make the best thing you can for the client out of the elements that they were able to supply. Mm-hmm. And I became I became really familiar with problem solving just to get through the elements. Trailers are no different than features. They're just uh, 85 minutes longer. Got or it. the other way around. Features are no different. They're just longer versions of the same process. And a trailer, um, it's 100, 120 shots, maybe more visual effects, mains and ends, mm-hmm. billing cards, music selection. So all of, the, all of the choices you're making in creating a trailer are choices that have to be made in making of a movie as well. It's the same, it's the same toolbox I'm building a smaller building. Fair enough. Now, what um, what kept you going all of these years when many of your colleagues tapped out or quit years ago? Because it's not easy. <laughs> well, it's I, I first I love what I do. Mm-hmm. I truly love what I do. At various times, I've been driven and driven as appropriate uh, by different things. In 1996, when my trailer company uh, had offices at 6565 Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. um, I was a partner in a recording studio called Hollywood Recording. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1996, my, uh, my business partner, Barry Skolnick, um, was shot dead in the parking lot early one morning wow. at the beginning of a business day. And as it turned out, um, the guy, as it turned out, I had introduced him to the guy, I had introduced him to a guy named Cole Allen, mm-hmm. who was a, who was a, a factor. He lent money against receivables mm-hmm. and I had done business with Cole and I, and Barry was my partner and friend and I introduced Barry to Cole. And before I knew it, Barry had borrowed a million dollars against paper. The studio was owed. Mm-hmm. And then one morning he was found shot dead in the parking lot. Wow. Cole Allen, Cole Allen became the key suspect in arranging that murder. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Now, okay, you're talking about some stuff. Where is Mr. Allen now? Okay, three weeks after Cole Allen was charged in the L.A. Times as a suspect, he died of a coronary and his body was cremated. Got it. In the aftermath of that, and partly to process the way I felt about having in, having what I thought what I thought I had done inadvertently was to introduce one of my best friends and partners to the guy who had him killed. Mm-hmm. Um, in the aftermath of that, I wrote a screenplay called Hearsay. Mm-hmm. Hearsay was about the voiceover was about two friends who started a voiceover business, um, and how one of them gets killed. I, pr- I went on to sell that screenplay to uh, a company called World International Network. Mm-hmm. Um, from this experience, I later learned uh, how people come in and recut your movie and, and release it differently. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'm allowed to say about that part, probably. Got it. I think you've said more than enough, but it, it does say, <clears throat> it does talk about that this is, you know, a high stakes business a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with that kind of money. 
people, that was a million dollar feature on 35 millimeter about, about the voiceover business and fast living and careless mistakes uh, that I was looking at as my, oh, this is my Sundance movie. I imported a gentleman named Chewy Chavez, a DP. Great name. Who shot shot star maps. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I brought him across the border. We flew him in just to shoot the movie. Right. And um, here's a a funny story. Um, On the first night of shooting of Hearsay, I am driving out to um, this this location in Palmdale for a midnight start because we're doing drive-bys with the two lead characters. And I'm driving in my Jeep Wrangler, and I've got Chewy Chavez, who speaks not a lot of English, in my front seat. And I accidentally cut off a state trooper. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, I'm being pulled over. And they go, all right, Mr. Weissman, um, do you have any drugs or weapons in this vehicle? And I was on my way to shoot the first night of my movie, my feature film. I'm I'm a director. Uh-huh. A writer-director on a mission because the movie's about the real-life experience of my dead friend getting right. murdered. Right. And the police officer says, drugs or weapons? And I say, I think about it for a half a second. I go, yes, your honor. Yes, oh. officer. Oh, my God. Both. He goes, what do you have? I've got some marijuana and I've got a loaded pistol. And they said, and they asked me to produce both the marijuana and the gun rug, the locked up gun, the loaded gun. Uh-huh. They spent 15 minutes holding me at the side of the road. And they said, all right, we understand you're going out to Palmdale to shoot. What's the pistol about? Well, my friend got murdered in a parking lot. I'm making a movie about it. <laughs> and if he died, Jesus. I'd be carrying a gun because he was my partner. He got murdered. And they said to me, you can go. This is your lucky night. Wow. And they gave me back my unloaded gun, gave me back my marijuana. And I went out to the shoot. The very first line of dialogue between the two characters and the first scene up that night, for which I arrived 15 minutes late, one character says to the other, this is our lucky night. (laughs) So why do we do it? Uh Life life imitates art, art, art imitates life. Yeah, what I find fascinating about your story, Straw, <clears throat> is that you've been you've been doing this for forty years, and you've 40, been forty two apparently forty two <laughs> apparently allegedly forty two years, and you there? Oh yeah, sorry. I'm here. Um. So what I what I find so fascinating is that you've been able to do this for so long. You've been able to support your family, uh, make a living, and enjoy this journey that it's been long and hard. And like we were saying before when we were talking earlier that, you know, a lot of times it's not about being the most famous director in the world, the most famous writer in the world. Um, You know, we all want to be the next Tarantino or the next Nolan or the next Fincher. But you said something really interesting when I said that, which was what? Do you remember? No, that without a thousand or two thousand of you, there couldn't be a Tarantino. Well, in a a certain way, the industry builds on itself without without Meganson and Fleeman coming together 
um, on the set of Pelvis, there would have been no FX. Right. That was another. And, that was another movie in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wrote with I wrote with Charles Kaufman on a couple of movies. We wrote. I wrote. A, we co-wrote a movie called The Outdoorsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, later changed. Later changed to. Um, I think I remember it as the Outdoorsters. It was a, a, a spoof of a family wilderness movie that his brother Lloyd Kaufman released through Troma. Right. You know, it, it's at the end of it. I, according to IMDb, I've produced forty-one. I've written fourteen. I've directed eight, and that doesn't count everything. And those are feature films. So I, I look at it. I look at it as a continuing flow. We're still doing it. We're we're finished. I'm co-producing some wonderful independent product now, mm-hmm. and and there's stuff coming up. And we're struggling to get other stuff made, like everyone else should be, mm-hmm. who is getting everything they want made. It is a struggle. It's the nature of being independent, unless you're wildly successful. But and even wildly successful people still have to hustle. I mean, Spielberg couldn't even get money for Lincoln. It was Steven Spielberg. I, I have a feeling Luke Besson is not going to go so big so soon again because he's not having a positive indie film experience this time. Yeah, it's not Fifth Element, that's for sure. That's what I hear. Um, now, can you, what is the craziest story, filmmaking industry story, that you can share publicly besides the one you just shared? Besides the one I just shared. Yeah, besides the one you just shared. The funniest, you know, the weirdest, the craziest, like I can't believe – this is my life. Well, the last story is pretty much, I can't believe this is my life. Um, I think, you know, it all kind of runs together for me. It's a, it's a stream of conscious, um, that just keeps flying back up in my face as a reminder of where we've been, what we do. I've, I've been on sets with major stars. I've had major stars yell at me. I've yelled back at people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people hug me and then not take my phone calls. Um, I've had people hug me and then take my phone calls. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, in reflection, I, I think it's just, you know, it's just so far. I'm looking forward to what the rest of the day brings that's- every day. And that's, and that's, that's part of why I do what I do. You 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 learn to enjoy the journey. You learn to enjoy the path, walking the path as opposed to the destination. If if I can, if that is that a fair statement. Ab, well, I love what I do. Mm-hmm. I love going into an editing room and sitting with a writer director who's got a film that doesn't work, and watching watching the cut in progress and saying, "Look, if we take out these things and we add these things, and if you're planning on reshooting, let's shoot that." And, and you know, and we see the material start to come to life. Mm-hmm. That's exciting as hell. It's like giving birth. Well, you know, <laughs> well not exactly like giving birth. But giving creative birth. Yeah, creative birth. Now, can you can you really uh, address this concept of how important it is in today's filmmaking landscape that filmmakers know more than one or two skills in order to just be able to survive and, and thrive in the business? I, I, a good example is a promo class I teach at Santa Monica College, uh, which is part of the Promo Pathways program that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in that promo class, um, 
you're forced by me. Uh, you're forced to write your promo, shoot your promo, or get video for your promo, edit your promo, put music on it, and get a narrator or narrate it. And from that exercise, that 30-second exercise, as many times as we do it, you have to be a writer, a producer, a director, an editor, a graphic artist, a music supervisor, a sound mixer, and maybe a recordist or a camera operator. And what I know is that in this day and age, your, your average 20-something is already way more gifted technically in all of those areas than, than they even acknowledge. They're all multi-level communicators. But to have all of those skill sets, to understand how those jobs work together, mm -hmm. in short form, is to understand how they work together in long form. So if you can create small, you also have the potential capability to create big. Now, if you can make a trailer, you understand the components of making a movie. Now go find the other 89 minutes. <laughs> Great. Now, what is the advice you would give an independent filmmaker wanting to make their first feature film? I would say do not make a short. Now, okay. I know this is controversial. Mm -hmm. I would say write a feature script that you, that you believe in, that you think is important and has merit, that might even change things. Mm -hmm. that's, that's either hysterically funny or incredibly dramatic or or extremely heartfelt, but dig into your material, come with something good, and then try to find a way to make it for no money if you can. And the reason I say that is that the marketplace responds to product. And the, the shortest distance between a young filmmaker and a career is here is my product. Here's my 89, 90-minute feature and it's finished, and it's ready to go, and it exists. And then the marketplace can pick and choose. Not everybody who does this is going to be successful because it's not easy to do what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it's a great way to showcase a story. It's a great way to see if you have the chops. And it's hard to argue with your finished film. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to, I'm going to, I'm getting around to is one story here. We shot this 90 minute feature and we were smart enough to find a way to get it in the can. Take a look. And then the only question is, can you sell it and who can you sell it to? Right. And now, now you're, and now you're a professional independent filmmaker. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Wow. In business, the hardest lesson for me to learn was that my clients in the trail in trailers and promos and sometimes and sometimes in the rest of the creative process that that at the that I have that I have strong opinions about everything but at the end of the day my clients are always right for them for a long time I did for a long time I did advertising for Saban International mm -hmm. um a lot of their trailers and promos. And my, and my client was the guy who was selling. And what he would continually say is, here's my market, here's what I want. And when I deliver what he wanted, he was successful. So listening to the people you're working for 
makes a ton of sense. There was no point in arguing that I didn't agree with him. It was mm-hmm. easier to figure out a way to get where he wanted to go. Mm-hmm. It's a good form of commercial collaboration. I mean, you'll have your own chance to say, this is where I want to go and nobody can affect it and I'll hang for the $178 million if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Which is what, you know. um, so that's one of the lessons I've learned. The other lesson I've learned as a creative, when I look at other people's material, I always ask what movie we wish we had. Good, good question. Because this tells us where we really want to go. What do we wish this was? What impulses and energies in the project that we're selling or marketing or trying to finish do we most want it to have when it's done? What do we want it to be? And then I lean into that. And that seems to always work on some level. What is it, what is it wish it could be? That's a great question. Great question to ask yourself as a filmmaker. Now, what are three of your favorite films of all time? I like Tommy. Okay, good film. I like Ken Wells, Tommy. Um, I like Casino. Mm-hmm. Good movie. Which I could see any part of from the beginning, the middle, or the end. Wouldn't matter any time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my third choice is a lot of movies. But those are those two. Those are the two that I would stop what I was doing. Whenever it would happen and play back, you know, if I stumbled across them, I, I, I like a lot of film and I, because I work on a lot of film, I see a lot of film. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm constantly refreshing. <laughs> okay. No worries. And yeah. where, and where can people find you in the digital internet landscape, sir? In the digital internet landscape. Um, so I'm on IMDB straw Weissman mm-hmm. and, um, now, I think American Beach House is in release. Uh, Bikini Model Academy is in release. Mm-hmm. The conversation about possibly making a Bikini Model Academy 2, um, <laughs> which I would call Bikini Model Academy Dance Attack. Of, co- of course. Or Dance Attack International. Of course. Uh, I'm co-producing a very cool new indie feature called Captain Black mm-hmm. for a filmmaker named Jeffrey Johnson. We're just finished. We're just waiting for our first composite print right now. Mm-hmm. We're excited about that. Um, I'm a co-producer on an international feature with China called The Jade Pendant, mm-hmm. which is scheduled to open later this year. I'm supervising a recut that I have a non-disclosure on. <laughs> of course. Of course you do. For the moment. Um and then there's the back library movies like Dying on the Edge, which I wrote. But uh, I'll, I'll put links. To, I'll put links to all of those, all your films. Is there anywhere if anybody wants to get in contact with you, where would they go? Marquee, just address an email to me, Marquee Pro at AOL. And then, or it, and you have a website, I'm assuming. Um, Strawweisman.net. Uh, my website is as old as I am. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So dial up. We're, Got it. We're up. It, it, it's funny. We're creating websites for movies now as part of our creative uh, process and, and vendor relationships. Um, one of the next things up is now that we know, now that we're doing websites is to do a website for me. <laughs> Sounds good. Sean, man, thank you so much for 
your honesty, your your passion, and your inspiration, uh, and showing people that you can make a living in this business, but you got to add a lot of hustle to it. And you are definitely the definition of that, sir. So thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to the tribe. Thank you, Alex. It's been great fun. So, wow. Um, I told you guys that that was going to be pretty intense and, uh, and Straw did not disappoint. I, I want to give, again, a big thank you to Straw for coming on and being so honest and raw about his life and about, uh, you know, just what he's, what he's had to do to keep going in this business. And I hope that you guys pick up some lessons from this interview because it isn't an easy journey. And I'm the first one to tell you, it's not an easy journey being in the film industry. Uh, and and it changes so often now that you constantly have to be moving and ducking and, 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 and weaving like you're in a heavyweight fight because things are coming at you at a completely different pace than they did when Straw started, you know. Uh, but he's dealing with all of those things now and having the history that he had in the industry back when it was not the way it is today. But I just hope you guys find the, the strength to keep moving forward no matter what this industry throws at you. Because at the end of the day, if you really love it and you really want to be in it, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to hustle harder than you ever had in your life. And you better enjoy that journey and enjoy that fight and enjoy that hustle. Because if not, you're going to be done and you'll be in another business and doing something else and not following your dream as a filmmaker, a screenwriter, a storyteller, or any aspect of this business that you want to be in. But that concept of moving forward, no matter what hits you, is the theme of this episode. And I really hope it just, I drive it home really, really deep into your skulls, guys. Because I want you to succeed. I want you to tell your stories. I want you to have a business and do, make a living doing what you love to do. And I hope that this episode and this podcast in general helps you on that journey, guys. If you want links to anything we talked about in this episode, head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 183 for the show notes. And I wanted to thank you guys all for all the well wishes for uh, our Hulu deal. We've been getting emails and uh, instant messages like crazy once you guys heard it on on that episode. Uh, I think it was 180 that I, I announced that we got that Hulu deal. So again, thank you so much for all the well wishes. I I truly, really thank you for from the bottom of my heart. And uh, got some stuff cooking, guys, so stay tuned. It's going to be an exciting week at Indie Film Hustle. We'll be popping out another episode later on this week. Got some great guests in the can coming up, some exciting stuff that I can't wait to share with you guys. But, uh, but keep going, guys. No matter what, keep hustling. Keep moving forward, all right? So as always, keep that hustle going, keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. 
Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia, 